Good evening, everybody. Um, you're all beautifully behaved, which must mean that none of my students are here. Um, very warm welcome to the LSE. Um, thanks for making it through the appalling weather conditions. Also, thanks for making it through the little maze of building works uh, to get to this venue. Uh, and I can tell, you know, the fact that uh, we are so full tonight shows what a very hot issue this is and how difficult it is. I should explain, my name's Charlie Beckett. Uh, I'm a former journalist and I now run Polis, which is the journalism think tank here at the LSE. I'm also head of the Media and Communications Department at the LSE. And the reason we're doing this is because I was... Um, you know, idling away on Twitter the other day and Mehdi and David were moaning about the fact that they'd been on Radio 5 talking about the whole issue of offence and the Innocence of Muslims film and so on and were moaning that they hadn't been given enough time and rather stupidly I said <coughs> well come to the LSC I'll give you 90 minutes uh, to talk about these issues so they very kindly agreed to do so and that's what we're going to do um, so first of all, we're going to hear from David Aranovich, who's a, a columnist on The Times. Uh, he's also the author, author of a book called Voodoo Histories, very good analysis of conspiracy theories. So David's going to kick off for 15 minutes talking about the principles behind the right to offence. And then Mehdi Hassan, who is the political editor of Huffington Post UK, um, is then going to take 15 minutes to set out his views then we're going to have a bit of an exchange between uh, the two speakers, and then we're going to throw it oops, open to you lot to ask your questions. So bear with us, be a bit patient, but that's the deal, that I think this is such a uh, you know, ferocious uh, topic that we're trying to get a little bit more detail into the discussion and um, a little bit more um, thought and reflection as well as the interactivity. And I, I'm glad we're doing this, um, and I'm glad we're doing it with Huffington Post UK as well. Uh, they're kindly sponsoring uh, this event and acting as media partners. They're recording it as well. Um, obviously, they are a place where debate is happening. They've only been around in the UK for the last year, but there's already uh, 4 million uh, regular users of that website. So I encourage you to uh, have, a, have a go to the conversation that's happening on that website as well. But I'd like to kick off first, though, invite David to, 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 to kick us off with a presentation which includes some videos, so bear with us on the technology as well. Uh, Thank thanks, you. Charlie. Um, I've never, ever used audiovisual, so this is going to be a catastrophe. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm very glad and uh, uh, grateful to Charlie and maybe for acting as disputes entrepreneur, um, which is obviously one of the ways you make a living at the London School of Economics these days. Um, and a good way it is, it, it is too. Um, this, the, the, the title of the discussion is about the right to offend. Uh, of course, it's true to say that there is no such right. Um, if you look in the uh, United Nations Charter, um, and indeed, I believe, at the, uh, the First Amendment uh, the United States uh, Constitution. There's no such thing as a right to offend. What there is, is a right to freedom of expression and speech. But even in the United Nations Charter, this is qualified by certain rights that states and others have to um, contain free speech. 
But first, therefore, in trying to kind of get our heads around the notion of the right to offend, which also includes the need to allow yourself to be offended, I just want to show first this, this first clip, what happens when you don't recognise that people have a right to offend you. Um, bear with me. Here we go. I hope that doesn't mean it's the end of the slideshow. Click to exit. Skip that one. Just, just click on and then just move on. Oh, yeah. Do beg your pardon. He's a newspaper person, I mean, God. <laughs> Funerals, prayers today for yeah. one of those killed in Friday's demonstrations. The yeah, got it. A day of protests, but called for it to be peaceful. Instead, there was rage on the streets against the film and against the United States, which is seen by many here as the enemy. And after the mayhem and destruction, now an extraordinary statement from a government minister soliciting the murder of the filmmaker. To applause from local journalists in the city of Peshawar. I invite our Taliban and Al-Qaeda brothers to take part in this noble cause. I will give $100,000 to whoever succeeds. If he is handed over to me, I will do it myself. The minister may have been playing to the gallery, but he was speaking for himself, not the government of Pakistan. Tonight it has completely disassociated itself from his remarks. A spokesman didn't rule out action against him, but said for now he would remain in his post. Orla Giran, BBC News, Islamabad. So it was obviously good to know that that wasn't actually official Pakistan railway policy because that was the railways minister suggesting that what you should be able to do what he wanted to be able to do was to kill a stupid filmmaker who had made effectively a kind of sub YouTube video in a country thousands of miles away but he pulled out a bounty and suggested that um, his brothers in the Taliban and Al-Qaeda who incidentally would like to kill him too one of the ironies uh, uh, about this should be brought forward to uh, should be should, should he would pay this bounty for them uh, to kill uh, this person uh, who had made this film the innocence of the Muslims. That's how strongly the Pakistani railways minister felt about it, or at least, and this is something we'll come to. That's how strongly he wanted the people, his constituents, to believe he felt about. Because one of the things we'll discover as we go through this is that actually offence is almost inseparable um, in some of these occasions from politics. Um, and that's part of the difficulty. Now, so, that's what I say. That's what happens if you don't recognise the ability, the right of other people to offend you. This is the kind of extreme end of it. Um, but I think we ought to uh, allow, because that takes place in Pakistan, aspects of our own history here in this country. The last person to be executed for blasphemy in the British Isles was executed in 1696, December 1696, in Edinburgh. Um, and he was a chap called Thomas Aitkinhead. Um, this is what it was said that he had done. He railed on Christ, saying he had learned magic in Egypt, which enabled him to perform those pranks which were called miracles. 
that he called the New Testament the history of the imposter Christ, that he said Moses was the better artist and the better politician, and he preferred Muhammad to Christ, that the Holy Scriptures were stuffed with such madness, nonsense and contradictions that he admired the stupidity of the world in being so long deluded by them that he rejected the mystery of the Trinity as unworthy of reputation and scoffed at the incarnation of Christ. Um, even in 1696, this case, cause, case was a cause celebre in Scotland. Plenty of people in Scotland didn't want it to happen. However, um, the major body which got the dominant say on it was the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Um, it was a very powerful body, and it urged vigorous execution on the basis that we needed to curb, I quote, the abounding of impiety and profanity in this land. So Aikenshead's sentence was confirmed. Um, on the morning of 8th of January 1697, he wrote to his friends, it is a principle innate and co-natural to every man to have an insatiable inclination to the truth and to seek for it as for him treasure. Um, and those were the words, in effect, that he, uh, that he stepped onto the gallows with on that January day in 1697, the last person to be executed for blasphemy in the British Isles. Um, the last person to be imprisoned for blasphemy in Britain was a guy called John William Gott in 1921. He'd already been imprisoned a number of times. Um, but in his final imprisonment um, for selling um, uh, 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 birth control tracts and other material, but the charge which was increased to blasphemy, which is to utter uh, um, impieties about a sacred figure, um, the judgment of the Court of Appeal, Lord Trevethin, said, it does not require a person of strong religious feelings to be outraged by a description of Jesus Christ entering Jerusalem, quotes, like a circus clown on the back of two donkeys. There are other passages in the pamphlet equally offensive to anyone in sympathy with the Christian religion, whether he be a strong Christian or a lukewarm Christian, or merely a person sympathising with their ideals. Such a person might be provoked to a breach of the peace. Now, you have coming together there the two elements. The first is the notion of the causing of offence to any reasonable Christian. And the second is that that person, in being so offended, might be occasioned into a breach of the peace. And this is usually the two parts of the argument about controls on the right to offend. The first is simply that they are offensive... And the second is that being offensive, they will lead the people so offended to do things which will be breaches of the peace, and therefore the offensive action itself constitutes a breach. Okay, so hold those two elements very tightly together in your mind. That was the last action for blasphemy brought by a government in Britain, in other words, about 19 years ago and so on, since when we have had one uh, prosecution um, for, uh, for religious libel, which was the famous gay news case in 1977, and so on, which was actually a private prosecution brought by Mary Whitehouse. Needless to say, since then, our practice in this country has changed significantly. And that's where I want you to look at these two clips. Um, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. So, um, if you just bear with me a moment. Yeah. Join heartbingo.co.uk today. Deposit just £10 and you'll have £30 to play. 
Chewing on last gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this will help things turn out for the best. Aye. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. Ain't always look on the bright side of life. Come on! Always look on the bright side of life. Sorry, for the sake of brevity. Um, uh, so we need to get to the next yeah. clip now, Charlie. So just uh, help me line that. So that is the famous clip that leads into one of the most famous songs that you can currently find in this country. Um, so we're going to the debate, which has John Cleese in it. Yeah, that one. Um, See this garbage, some of it at the hands of our friend Bishop here. I'm very sympathetic indeed, and I think it's very sad and tragic that you should have been cut off from something that's so wonderful and only given garbage. But I would simply point out to you that if you look, if you if you care about what constitutes what we call Western civilization, which now probably is coming to an end, and you were to consider the role that's been played in that by this thing that you treat as a piece of buffoonery, uh, you, would, you would have a certain humility in saying that you have been able, through making it, to, uh, to shed light upon something. you keep something. making the basic assumption... Sorry, let me just say this, yeah. Mark. You keep making the basic assumption that we are ridiculing Christ and Christ's teaching, and I say that we are not. But do you imagine that your scene, for instance, of the Sermon on the Mount, the scene in, this, in your, your film of the Sermon on the Mount, right. is not ridiculing one of the most sublime utterances that any human being has ever spoken on this earth? Of course it is. No, no, it's Absolutely making fun not. of the guy. Okay, I mean, you get the general gist. Back in 1979, the scene that we saw before was deeply controversial. The Malcolm Muggeridge, who was one of the leading moralists of the time, and the Bishop of uh, Southwark, Mervyn Stockwood, came together. Actually, there is a clip which very specifically attacks the, um, the crucifixion scene. And what Malcolm Muggeridge says is, you have made an absolute mockery of this incredible scene which has inspired some of the greatest art 
in the history of the world has moved people passionately. And what have you given them in return? You have given them nothing but cheap laughter. You should be ashamed of yourself. That essentially was the uh, uh, was was his argument. Um, so you can see that that was a significant amount of offence, and nevertheless, nobody was prosecuted for it. I want now to move to Jerry Spring the Opera, if you can, just to kind of um, bring this even more up to date. Yeah, this, yeah. Satan's list of guests. What are you doing here? What do you want? Sit in him beside me, hold my hand and guide me, cause it ain't easy being me. It's um, so, potentially offensive to every single monotheist in any room. I mean, this is kind of multi-purpose representation of the deity in Jerry Springer and actually what God is doing uh, in that is he also needs Jerry Springer's help but as it turns out that everybody does the guy in the red on the left is the devil now that actually is comprehensively the least scatological scene in Jerry Springer uh, uh, the opera uh, and actually when I saw Jerry Springer the opera I was almost more surprised by the language that you were allowed to hear in the theatre than I was actually in any of the religious content. Because, frankly, in that period, the discussion had moved on through Monty Python, Life of Brian, through to Jerry Springer, the opera, and essentially we had a, a, a position in this country where we can make virtually any representation of a religious or political idea that we want to make. Uh, uh. However, we have 
in recent years run into a very substantial problem, um, which is that a combination of two or three things coming together has given us a great deal of difficulty. We first became really aware of it in the Rushdie affair in, uh, in 1989, where we had the scenes of people on British streets calling for the death of an author for the sin of writing a book, of writing a novel. That's all Salman Rushdie did. He wrote a novel. Some people didn't like it. A lot of people who protested against it hadn't read it, uh, even. Quite a lot of the people who read it and didn't like it didn't understand it, uh, and so on. A very, very few of the people who read it and understood it uh, 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 and who didn't like it were offended by it. Nevertheless, the notion was that it was an offensive book, and this became a co- you know, the great cause celebre of the end of the 80s. And since then, we've had a kind of... And we had the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa, um, the fact that Rushdie had to go into hiding for 10 years, his Norwegian publisher was shot, his Japanese translator was murdered, several other people were murdered. There were plenty of people in Britain who were found to say, don't put out the paperback because you'll offend people, you'll make matters worse, you'll create more difficulty for people. The paperback penguin, the paperback uh, uh, themselves, didn't want to put up a paperback for fear of offending further people. This is a novel we're talking about. The right to produce in this country a novel, not, uh, 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 not anything else. We had it again in 2005 with the Danish cartoons business. Same year that Jerry Springer, the opera, came out and was protested against, by the way, widely protested against, the Danish cartoons uh, supposedly depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Though, of course, when one says something depicts something, it depicts perhaps the uh, the Prophet Muhammad like Benjamin Lake, the tenor, depicts God. He's only God in the sense that you want him to be or somebody says that it's God. It actually, you know, uh, this is a, a kind of thing for, for, for the faithful in a sense to kind of understand. But I don't understand in a sense why if you have faith in a deity, then you think they can be depicted by somebody else in terms utterly unlike the one you experience of them. It's a strange, it is a kind of strange thing. Presumably it means, or it seems to suggest, an incredible fragility in the thing that you hold in your head about it or something else, which we'll come on to. And then, of course, we have the innocence of the, uh, of the Muslims this year, which gave rise to the discussion that Mehdi Hassan and I had, and at which point I should say that the latest thing that Mehdi has written about, I find very, very diff- little to quarrel about with it, um, in which he essentially said the things, some of the things I've said, and he will, actually, uh, and he will uh, amplify them, uh, and so on. But an illustration of the fact that this is a very particular kind of problem comes in the clip you won't see. Because when I was discussing this with Charlie before we, had this, uh, before we had this meeting, I said, what I would like to do is I'd like to show these clips from Life of Brian and from Jerry Springer and the Opera, and I'd like to show the Charlie Hebdo depiction cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, insofar as that. Uh, I've seen some of them, and I don't really see how they can be said to be inflammatory as, uh, 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 as things themselves. Um, Charlie, to my immense relief, said no. So let me just kind of admit straight away that I was relieved that he said no. I would have done it because it would have been utterly inconsistent with what I'm showing there if I hadn't done it. But I didn't particularly want to, and the LSE said no. And the LSE said no because there are, said to be, or regarded to be, particular sensibilities that are so much greater than those held by the people who protest outside Jerry Springer of the opera, 
so much more important than Malcolm Muggeridge or the Bishop of, uh, of Southwark's uh, worries about the life of Brian and whether actually it demeaned uh, 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 people significantly that in fact we decided we couldn't really do it. So what we have there is a kind of collision between a vision of offence, a world of such exceptional mobility in terms of information and so on, that offence can be created with a group of people on the other side of the world by somebody working in their garage and downloading to a YouTube, an absolute cacophony of speech and an explosion of speech such as we have never, ever heard before amongst competing groups, that we are in real difficulty now with, I, I would suggest to you, with laws like the new law in Russia and so on, which sit on blasphemy, which seek to suggest that freedom of speech must be curtailed at the point where it might offend or where it could cause offence. And incidentally, it will always, like the 1922 judgment, also be placed in terms of the likeliness that people may respond to it in some kind of a violent way. I, my contention is we simply cannot maintain ourselves in a world like that. Or as I said to for the, uh, in, a speech, uh, in, a, uh, in a contribution to the Frontline Club last week, in this world, we've all got to learn to be a lot less bloody touchy frankly, because we are not going to get through it if we don't. We can't. Uh, and, that, and that may be me, and it may be a whole lot of other people. Now, before we get onto Meta's thing, something that we should concede about ourselves is that we are utterly inconsistent on these matters. Today, a man went to prison for four months because of what he wore on a T-shirt in Manchester. Um, three and a half hours after the two women police officers were killed in Manchester, this chap, who has a grudge against the police and is obviously not quite all there, was wandering around with a homemade T-shirt, uh, T-shirt, uh, um, saying, um, "One less pig, perfect uh, uh, police, killer cop for fun." This was what was on his T-shirt. Um, the inspector of police, the local inspector of police, said to mock or joke about the tragic events of that morning is morally reprehensible, morally reprehensible, a moral judgment on the part of a police inspector turned into a four-month sentence, presumably on the same basis as Liam Stacey, which was a public order act. Liam Stacey was the idiot who tweeted out on a tweet line that almost nobody knew about, or very few people did, or very few people did, a, uh, a stupid and racist tweet about Fabrice Mwamba, the, uh, the Bolton player who collapsed actually at Tottenham Hotspur on the day that I was there and I, and I saw it happen. Um, Stacey got 56 days in prison as a student. He had no previous offences of any kind whatsoever. On the basis, and this was in the, ju in the judge's judgment, that he would have out essentially outraged public morality, that people would be so outraged by it that just the act of causing the outrage to so many people was in itself imprisonable. Was in itself imprisonable. We seem to be seeing one of these cases, or two of these cases, every fortnight or every month, and we've got um, uh, somebody here from Index on Censorship who, may, who will be tracking this, will be able to tell us just how many cases we have at the moment of social media throwing up cases of people effectively falling foul of the law, mostly not very clever people and so on, because most people don't want to try and get themselves done, sometimes very provocative people. Uh, and so on. So the next admission is that we are in uh, great trouble with this if we don't accept that there is a right to offend. I just want to show one last thing, Charlie, if you can kind of get me back to the... Uh, this is what 
the result of accepting and changing your view on the right to offend can be. Uh, It's the wrong spot. Um, what happens in the clip that I was going to show you is that Eric Idol appears in the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games, and what is the song that 80,000 people sing? Always look on the bright side of life, the very song from the sequence that was deemed to be blasphemously offensive in 1979. Um, that's what can happen if you do permit yourself to be offended and give other people, I think, the right to offend. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much. <laughs> is, uh, thanks very much, David. Um, I quite like the Blue Skies clip anyway, but does, is anybody standing that needs to sit down behind there? Because there are some seats down the front here, two in the middle. No? You're all happy? Great. Many, please go up. Thank you over here. I'm loud. Thank you very much, Charlie. Um, thanks, David. You managed to squeeze in the life of Brian and the Olympics. I've actually got no chance tonight. Off, off the back of that, I should have brought some clips of mine. I don't know what's more popular uh, than those two clips. But good evening. Before I go any further, I want to make two quick yet very important points. Disclaimers, uh, if you will. First, I'm not here to defend, excuse, or apologise for the fools, bigots, and thugs who set fire to foreign embassies, burned US flags and threw Molotov cocktails at police officers uh, in various Muslim-majority countries uh, a few weeks ago. Their violence was totally unjustifiable, outrageous, also counterproductive. Uh, if you want to know my views on those protesters specifically, uh, then you can read the open letter that I wrote to them in the New Statesman last week or on HuffingtonPost.co.uk, which David uh, very kindly mentioned already. Uh, the second disclaimer is that this isn't a debate uh, in the formal sense or the Oxford Union sense where there is a motion that David and I are arguing for or against. It's more of a discussion about the right to offend, about free speech, about Muslims, about limits, uh, in which I want to uh, agree with David at times, disagree with some of what David said, um, and I want to basically make some points that aren't being made and raise some questions, unfortunately, that aren't being raised uh, in the current uh, debate. I want to thank Charlie Beckett before I go any further because he put this together very, very quickly and thank the LSE uh, and my employers, the Huffington Post, uh, for organising this event. David and I were indeed moaning. I want to thank all of you for coming in the rain to this event. Uh, I want to thank my parents who are in the crowd today, which is always <laughs> nice to have your family here. In fact, in fact, I must say on that note, I'm always reminded how my dad got so much flack back in 1989, for he was the one Muslim who went out and bought Satanic Verses, read it, put it on our bookshelf in our dining room, got loads of flack from friends of ours. It didn't make us the most popular family in the community on a Saturday night. Uh, but it did, uh, it did kind of uh, remind me that Muslim households are not as universally opposed to uh, works of literature that are offensive or freedom of speech as some might assume. So thanks for that, Dad. Um, look, I don't pretend to have all the answers tonight. This is a very controversial issue, it's a thorny issue. 
it's not as black and white as some suggest, as David implied but didn't go out as far as to say. I think there's lots of shades of grey. I want to make four points, raise four issues tonight. Uh, my time is short, so forgive me if I zoom through them and talk very fast. Free speech tonight will be fast speech. The first point I want to make is this. Isn't it so very annoying when people, especially in the media, try and have a debate about offensive movies, cartoons, etc., and they begin from the rather naive, if not disingenuous, premise that we all, each and every one of us, have some sort of absolute, inalienable, unrestricted, untrammeled right to free speech, that there are no curbs, no restraints, no limits, either in law or in morality. That's the starting point, it seems, of any debate that I've been involved in. So many people, too many people in my view, and I'm not actually going to include David in this because David accepted at the end, and we'll come to what David was saying at the end, but too many people tend to talk in this rather deceptive way, as if, as if they're free speech absolutists. Ain't it cool to believe in free speech without any restrictions? And yet when you challenge them, when you drill down, you find that they are no such thing. Of course not. There are very few free speech absolutists in the world. From John Stuart Mill with his famous condemnation of the man who shouts fire in a crowded theatre, right up until the European Convention on Human Rights, there is no absolute right to free speech. The ECHR in Article 10 says, and I quote, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, but then goes on to say that, quote, the exercise of these freedoms may be subject to restrictions or penalties, including, quote, in the interests of national security, territorial integrity, public safety, for the prevention of disorder or crime, for the protection of health or morals, for the protection of the reputation of the rights of others, for prevention of the disclosure of information received in confidence, or for maintaining the authority and impartiality of the judiciary. A fair few restrictions there. Now, you might say that being offensive, and being offensive to religion in particular, isn't covered by any of this. You might say that, you would be wrong. Two examples. In 1994, the ECHR judges upheld an Austrian government ban on a movie that insulted Christianity on the grounds that it would offend the country's Roman Catholic population. In 1997, ECHR judges upheld a decision by the British Board of Film Classification to refuse to grant a certificate to the film Visions of Ecstasy, a short erotic film involving nuns that I have not seen, <laughs> on the grounds that it was blasphemous. Blasphemous. Now, whether you agree with these decisions, and I'm assuming David doesn't, a lot of you here don't, I probably don't, maybe, is not the point. It's beside the point. The point is that these decisions were made in Europe's top court of law, i.e. restrictions on freedom of speech, on offensive speech, even relating to religion, already exist in case law and have nothing to do with Islam or Muslims. Whisper that to the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. Anyone who claims there's an absolute or inalienable right to free speech is either a liar or a fool or probably both. And that leads me on nicely to my second point, which relates to double standards and which David, to his credit, has already raised but didn't really have the time to get into. Why, oh why, do we assume that those pesky Muslims out there need to get with the programme and jump on the freedom of speech right to offence bandwagon when so many of us are not cool with it ourselves. When you look around, you see it's not exactly universal. I wonder sometimes, do we not see how hypocritical it is for Europeans, many of whom come from countries across the continent, which ban Holocaust denial on the grounds that it causes offence and incites hate? Oh yes. 
to then lecture Muslims at home and abroad on the need to get thicker skins, or to use David's phrase, to be less touchy, to not get offended by blatantly and gratuitously offensive cartoons or caricatures, and then not look around at what's going on around them. The Danish newspaper, which published those cartoons of the Prophet in 2005, had earlier, three years earlier, refused to publish cartoons of Jesus Christ on the grounds that it would offend the Christians of Denmark. And a year later, when Fleming Rose, the hero of the right who published those cartoons, tried to publish Holocaust denial cartoons, or mocking the Holocaust cartoons, was given a leave of absence, and the editor apologized for offending the Jews of Denmark. Now, a Brit or American might say, we don't have Holocaust denial laws. David, I know, doesn't support Holocaust denial laws. But we do have other laws. We do have other quote-unquote abuses. David touched on the Manchester case today, where this guy's gone to prison. Earlier this week, it's been a great week for it, there was a British Muslim young man, angry young man, who decided to go on Facebook, angry about the war in Afghanistan, and say about British soldiers that they should, quote, die and go to hell. He was found guilty and sentenced to 240 hours of community service. Um, Also this week, we had the 19-year-old guy who wrote abusive comments about five-year-old April Jones, who was missing on his Facebook page. He got three months in prison. You know what they say, charity begins at home. I would argue that perhaps the battle for free speech should begin at home uh, before we begin teaching the rest of the world. As for the Yanks, who are the masters of free speech, unlimited, untrammeled free speech, and yet everyone has something sacred. You don't have to be a believer to have sacred things that you cherish and value and don't want to be seen abused. Let's take 9-11. I listen to American politicians and pundits going on about how those Muslims need to get thicker skins and they need to understand free speech, and I ask myself this, what would the reaction be? Can you imagine if last year on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, on September the 11th, 2011, as America was mourning and remembering, the New York Times ran on its front page an interview with the mother of one of the hijackers in which she said, I think my son's a hero. He was great to bring down those twin towers. It was a wonderful day and they're martyrs. And they ran that on their front page. Can you imagine that happening? No, neither can I. And I'm not saying the New York Times should be banned or is banned from doing that. It's just that I assume that the editors at the New York Times would never dream of running such a piece on 9-11 out of taste, decency, and the desire to avoid offending people. Lest we forget, back in 2002, I should add, Bill Maher, the US comedian and talk show host, who presented an Emmy award-winning show called, ironically, Politically Incorrect, had his show cancelled and he was fired because he dared to point out that, in his view, he thought the 9-11 hijackers were quite courageous and not cowardly in flying planes into buildings. Then there's so-called political correctness itself which the right gets so upset by. David and I did a debate at the Cambridge Union a couple of years ago where we were on the same side, defending political correctness. By the way, we won, of course. Which, thanks to David, of course, which almost, by definition, political correctness, is a restriction on free speech, on the right to be offensive. Because far-right wingers want to hide behind political correctness, I would argue, and I argued that night, in order to bring back words like wog and chink and Packy and the N-word for black people. They want to do that under the, under, the, under the guise of this is all political correctness gone mad, I want free speech, I want the right to be a little bit troublesome. 
I would argue that most people in this room probably don't want to see those rights come back, don't want to see that language return. I mean, I would argue, and we can have this discussion later, that David should be on my side of the argument tonight, as he was in Cambridge. David, you don't want to live in a world where people in pubs can once again put up signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. But if the right to be offensive is so important and so expansive, then why not say such things? Why not glorify such comments? Some liberals say that people's beliefs are different. You can change your beliefs. You can't change the colour of your skin or your sexuality. Well, first of all, I would argue that's a total misreading of what belief is and how people hold religious beliefs, in particular Muslims. My Islamic faith defines my identity far more than my racial or cultural background. David wants to be able to mock my beliefs, my prophet, but he would never dare mock my race. As a Muslim, I would rather he mock my skin colour than mock that which is most important, most dear to me in my life, which is my faith and my prophet. And I know this may be hard for some of you to accept, understand, but a prophet who is more important to me than my own parents or my wife or my children. That is what it means to me. In the words of Ziauddin Sardar, the most liberal of liberal British Muslims, no friend of the fanatics, Muhammad is the paradigm of Muslim behavior and identity in its entirety. Muslims do not merely emulate his character and personality. It is the Prophet Muhammad who provides them with the ultimate reason for being Muslim. The Prophet and his personality define Islam and every Muslim relates to him directly and personally. So it doesn't matter how many times David shows us clips from the life of Brian. It won't affect many of us Muslims. Not until you try and understand what we feel, how we feel, why we feel it. You don't have to agree with us. Just please try and understand and empathize a little. This leads me on to my third point, which relates to Islamophobia. I'll be brief here. Most fair-minded observers of our media would accept, would acknowledge, and the empirical evidence shows this pretty clearly, that you can now say things about Muslims in the media, in the Western media, that you could not say about any other minority group. When I was at Channel 4, we did a little experiment. We took Peter Oborn, the journalist, out into the streets of London with placards where we doctored headlines from newspapers and taken out the word Muslim and put in other minorities. So, for example, the Daily Star's Muslim sickos, uh, Maddy kidnap shock, changed to gay sickos, Maddy kidnap shock. Christmas is banned, it offends Muslims. We change it to Christmas is banned, it offends Jews. Now Muslims tell us how to run our schools, Daily Express headline. We change it to now black people tell us how to run our schools. People were genuinely horrified, shocked, disgusted, offended when they saw the non-Muslim headlines. When they saw the real Muslim headlines, there was a kind of... Depressingly, Islamophobia is rampant in parts of our society, in parts of the media. It's open season and not just on the far right. It's all very well saying that the right to offend is a key pillar of liberal society. It's all very well saying that. But it becomes, I would argue, slightly problematic if all that offence is largely in a one-way direction and targeted at a small, weak, marginalised, powerless minority community in our midst. There's nothing brave about that. There's nothing courageous or free about that. I mean, frankly, I think it's irresponsible that for some people to try and divorce the row over the movie protests or the cartoons from the wider Islamophobia issue in our society that some of us are trying to tackle and resist. The political and media context here and some of those things David showed is very important. 
These cartoons, this movie, did not emerge from a vacuum. And my fourth, final, perhaps most important point is this. It relates to wider society. What kind of society do you want to live in? What kind of country do you want to live in? How do you want to relate to your neighbour, your school friend, your colleague at work who has different views or beliefs or practices, who looks or sounds different to you, who approaches life in a different way? Do you want to abuse him and all that he holds important, all that he says defines him as a person? That's how you want to build relationships? That's how you want to build social capital? I mean, how do you construct a civilized society, a cohesive society, especially one which is as culturally, religiously, racially diverse as ours, if we go around encouraging everyone in it just to insult one another? abuse one another, offend one another's core beliefs, principles, lifestyles, gratuitously, willy-nilly, for no real purpose. I'm not talking about academic debates here. You know, Tom Holland questioning the historical origins of Islam in a documentary or a book. That's annoying. It's sensationalist, but it's legitimate. I'm talking about people putting up ads on the New York subway, calling Muslims savages. I'm talking about people publishing cartoons in mainstream papers that portray Muslims, not just the Prophet Muhammad, Muslims, as terrorists, rapists, paedophiles. And look, yes, we have a right to offend. I don't deny that. I'm offensive to a lot of people. It's part of what I do. I'm paid to be offensive. My wife would argue it's part of my personality. I'm sure I've been offensive to David in the past. But having a right to offend or be offensive is not the same as having a duty to offend or be offensive. My favourite Journalist, one of my favorite journalists, Gary Young of The Guardian, says it best. The right to freedom of speech equates to neither an obligation to offend nor a duty to be insensitive. To conclude, I don't want to live in a society where the Danish cartoons are banned or where a Californian filmmaker has a bounty put on his head. But I do want to live in a society where no one sane, respectable or mainstream would ever dream of publishing such cartoons or distributing such vile films. I want to live in a society in which insulting and demonizing a weak minority in your midst does not become the litmus test of freedom and sophistication. Basically, I want to live in a civilized society, not, a, not an anarchic jungle. For me, this debate, this discussion, isn't about the philosophical right to offend. It's about what you do with this right in the real world, how you exercise it, on whose feelings, beliefs, and lives you trample on in order to do so. It's also about consistency, not double standards or brazen hypocrisy by the, by the majority in the face of the minority. Also, isn't it strange that some people want the right to be offensive and then get all so upset when other people get offended? It's a two-way street. I mean, I've got to ask the question to any of you, to David, to Charlie, how would you feel? Let's take David. David, a very, very well-known, articulate advocate of the Iraq war. How would you feel if a mob of people turned up across the street from you, set up a little picnic camp, and every day as you went to work or took your kids to school or whatever it is, they shouted abuse at you. They shouted all sorts of names. You Nazi, warmonger, blood on your hands. Every day, every night. I suspect you wouldn't just say it's free speech, it's fine. Some of us, maybe David would, maybe he's a purist, I don't know, we'll find out. But I suspect most people would call the cops. Say this is public order offence, this is not on, this is not tolerable. And yet we fetishise this idea to offend others. Look, I believe in freedom of speech, but I also believe in a right to live free from persecution, discrimination and demonisation in a world where we're not oversensitive, 
but where we're not insensitive either. I want to live in a society where we try to build bridges with one another, not in a society where we burn bridges with one another. I hope you do too. And even if you don't, even if you don't agree with me, I do hope you try and understand a little bit where I'm coming from. Thank you very much for your time. I feel like I should be calling on um, Mr. Hassan Sr. To, to contribute at this point, but uh, <laughs> he's already figured enough. Um, what I'd like to do is take a bit more time, because I think we've seen very clearly there that you know, some common ground, but I think it's taken us to the point about, well, what is the difference then? You know, what do we mean in practice? Um, it, I think both of you have said that this isn't a status quo we're talking about, that this is, uh, there are trends moving, it could be social media, it could be increased prosecutions in this country, it could be more violent reactions elsewhere. So we're not, you know, this is a kind of moving target. So like David, perhaps you want to respond first to what Mehdi was saying and then, you know, perhaps Mehdi would like to put yeah. some other questions back as well. I mean, uh, in, in what was a kind of tour de force, um, I think that um, Mehdi very... Um, very substantially conflated a series of things and pushed them together that actually we need to separate out. Um, uh, we need to separate out the question of civility. I mean, you use the phrase, Mehdi, going around and encouraging people to just about insult, to go around insulting everyone. That's not really the issue. The issue is whether or not you use the law to stop people doing things that other people consider to be insulting. It's not whether I agree with them. So, if we take, for instance, the Innocence of the Muslims film, uh, which I haven't bothered watching because the description of it was quite sufficient. Um, uh, but let's take, actually, let's take another example. Um, who here knows about the Skokie Nazi demonstration of 1977? Only a couple of you. This is a really, really famous test of, uh, of the American Constitution. From 19, Skokie is a, a suburb of Chicago where in 1977, one in six of everybody living in Skokie was a Holocaust survivor. Okay? And the American Nazi Party decided to march in Skokie. Now, not surprisingly, there were quite a few people who didn't want the American Nazi Party to march in Skokie. But the American Civil Liberties Union took up the case of the right of the American Nazis to march and won the case. Paradoxically, the Nazis didn't march in Skokie, as it happens, but nevertheless, th uh, thousands of members of the ACLU, um, the ACLU, incidentally, is the body now which works substantially for, amongst others, uh, terrorist suspects and others who are, uh, are held by the United States and therefore have some affinity for, uh, for, for groups in this country uh, and so on, the ACLU effectively worked on behalf of the right of the Nazis to march in Skokie. They didn't do that because they wanted to encourage Nazis to march in Skokie. Uh, the guy who took their case, a guy called Goldberger, you can probably tell from your name, was not himself a member of the Nazi party or not a member that the Nazi party would willingly have had. So it isn't about whether or not um, you want to encourage people to be uncivil to each other. The man we talked about who has been to prison with his, uh, who's been sent to prison with his T-shirt is not somebody I would want to encourage at all. 
Um, and actually, we can admit, as we discussed this in, in his room, that his case provides us with a significant problem, uh, really. At what point, for instance, on a social media use, as a social, and I think the point at which it actually becomes problematic, is when you detect something that amounts effectively to harassment and causing fear. I think that would be the basis, a bit like the incitement to violence tests, which we use on speech. So, in other words, we're not, by saying people can do something, we're not saying we want them to do something. When we say young people can have sex at 16, I'm not saying I want my daughters to have sex at 16. I'm just saying I think it should be legal for them to do so if they want to. So I think we should be... I think we should but I'm, be not dispute, I'm not disputed yeah. at any stage. Yeah. It's not about the legal argument is separate. The argument is about almost approval. And you're saying, it's not about approving... Not, so I'll give you an example. When the Danish cartoons were published, where it went up to the next level, if people remember, was when lots of papers across Europe republished the cartoons in solidarity. British papers didn't do so because the argument was, whether you believe it or not, they didn't want to add to the offence. They thought it was provocative, etc. Now, I would support that decision. That's nothing to do with the law. It's like my New York Times example. It's about people exercising a civic responsibility. Tony Blair, a man you're a bigger fan of than I am, used to often say, with rights come responsibilities. And I'm saying that in a society where we're all trying to rub along together, we're all from different backgrounds, you have a responsibility not to go out of your way, to piss people off, to try and kick off a riot, etc., etc. Put the law to one side. I'm talking about, do you accept that you, you have those obligations as a member no, of I, a plural I, society? I, no, I do. I, I certainly I do, I do accept that. But actually, since you take that case, that was wrong. It was wrong for no one to publish the Danish cartoons as it happens. They should have been published, and we should have been able to look at them. Now, actually, it actually happens. In the era of the internet, it almost becomes redundant, but we just have this kind of double space thing whereby you can allow things to happen on the internet that you can't actually print. Harry, Prince Halley's bum being a, uh, some people might think, a kind of typical, a typical example. Um, I don't think that can be right, and I don't think it's right that we didn't look at the Charlie Hebdo cartoons to judge for ourselves what the intention of them was and whether or not we actually would compare them with what was going on in the life of Brian or in Jerry Springer, the opera, and ask ourselves whether or not they aren't something that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years would be fairly routine if you had the right to say what you wanted. In other words, what I'm saying is, you may regard the prophet as being so important to you that you take great offence if there's any depiction of it. What I'd say to this is this, maybe. There are so much that your notion of the prophet and the prophet has become such an important person in all our lives, all our that we have got to be able to say about him what we want to say and have an argument about it in the terms we want to. Um, otherwise, we are, in real, we are in real trouble. And we, have to, and we have to accept that that right extends back both ways. So, so, you, so you would praise Ahmedinejad, whose response to the Danish cartoons grotesquely was to hold a Holocaust denial conference. I did not try and burn down the Iranian embassy, Matthew. No, but do you approve of that? No, I don't, I don't approve of it. But I don't want to stop him doing it. But if it ha started happening here, you wouldn't write a column condemning it? I would write a column trying to have an argument about what that case was. I certainly wouldn't like it, and I certainly wouldn't... Well, a lot of European countries would go to prison for it, of course. Yeah, and I'm against that. I'm against, and these are precisely the sorts of uh, uh, problematic areas we get into. We have an argument. We have now had the argument on the other side, let's say the other side, which says that because you have Holocaust denial acts, you are therefore hypocritical and therefore we are entitled to our sense of exaggerated offence at something that somebody does on the internet in America. That is precisely where an argument about Holocaust denial begins to get you, which is a kind of source for the goose and source for the gander argument, 
which ends up with nobody being able to say what they want to say. I wanted to be able to show those cartoons. And you know what, Matthew? They're not actually particularly offensive. They're of no importance. And you yourself... David, I don't understand how you can define what is offensive. Because, you, they're not offensive to you. Because I mean, you, you, wrote you, you, said, you said in your speech, I don't see how they can be seen to be inflammatory. With respect, David, you, you wrote it. You're very li- you have no, very little knowledge no, of Islam. No, you wrote it. What you said was, in your piece, and I thought it was absolutely excellent, is our sense, religious sense, so lacking in robustness, effectively, and I repeated it up there, that if somebody else has a representation of somebody they say is our prophet, we are so shaken no, I, by it. I stand despite, by that. Despite, no, no, I stand by that comment, but you're well, selectively well, quoting me, David. Well, Before well, that, I say, I say to the imaginary protester that you have every right to be angry. You have every right to be angry about what's been said to Prophet. And let's be very clear, this is not about some kind of Sharia law ruling on depiction of the Prophet. No Muslim I know of gets upset because a law has been broken. This is about what I mentioned earlier. This is about uh, imagine what would... Imagine, if you can't understand it, try and imagine what would happen if you saw your daughter on the front of Charlie Hebdo depicted in that way. That is the feeling times 100, which most Muslims see. As I said, I don't expect to share it, but try and understand where you're coming from without saying it's, it's not inflammatory to me. Well, with respect, why would it be? Just I mean, that's a circular argument. No, no, but there's nothing that you're saying that a Christian wouldn't have said about the depiction of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you have said about the prophet that well, that's not true. Christians don't believe about Jesus. But hold on, that's not true by definition, because lots of Christians have a problem with the life of Brian. No. Whereas lot, they, most Muslims I know, practising, no, non-practising... No, that, that's the result of a very different argument. Uh, we saw that Thomas Aikenhead was killed for blasphemy by Christians in, in 1696. No, it's exactly... That's exactly the point. The passage of time is the thing that changes it. If you saw depictions of Muhammad, if you were to have the life of Muhammad or the life of somebody supposed to be Muhammad but actually Brian, uh, and so on, and it was funny, and some of your Muslim mates thought it was funny as well, in 20 to 25 years, 30 years' time, this would cease to be a problem for you. So it's all about liberal progress. Yeah. It's a little bit patronising. Yeah. Not, I don't think it's patronising. Yeah, of course all. it is. Look I at us Christians and Jews. We moved on. You need to move I on think as well. It's if you want to insult people that, in your religion, you I mean, you're an atheist to begin with, aren't you? Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. So it's very, very hard to have this discussion. As I say, I don't try and get inside your head, but you can loosely Do just. It. You can just. Get inside my no, no, I want to, I want to hear your have argument. An argument about what's inside to, my head. No, but, but there's no point saying. I, do you accept? That if you say to a group of Muslims who feel very offended by something, I don't see how this can be inflammatory, that's not exactly a way to reconcile. It's not exactly finding common ground. Is it? I think, isn't it, isn't it no. as a journalist, if not as anything else, to try and find no, out no, why I, it's inflammatory? No, I might very well. Rather than just say, wait 40 years, you'll be fine. I, one of the problems. One of, well, actually, but that is the answer. It's not wait the answer. 40 years, yes, it is. Wait, can, 40, wait 40 In 40 years, years I'll come back happy, with you and I still want to look at those cartoons, dis- I can have, assure you. Have these discussions. No, you won't. You won't. You've already moved. Your position, moved as you put it, yeah, your position, as you put it in the news, it was already different from the one you debated with me on the radio. That's not Everybody, true at all. Yeah, it is true. No, I was writing for it a different is... audience. You write for different audiences. No. I'm writing to a Muslim audience, so I stress the importance what? of not going crazy and blowing stuff up. If I'm talking to a non-Muslim audience, I try and express to them why Muslims are no, upset. No. It's exactly what Jonathan Freeman does when he writes a Jewish Chronicle column and when he writes a Guardian no, column. No, no, no. It's Matthew, exactly the same. Matthew, you know perfectly well that when you write a letter to all Muslims in the New Statesman, most of the people reading are not Muslims, and you haven't written it for non-Muslims. Well, that's not you've true written, at all. No, 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 you've, written it, you've written it for everybody. And of course everybody I've written for everyone, as does Jonathan Friedland the Jewish Chronicle, but no. you know who your audience are. No, no, no. News, yeah, that's the Unfortunately, the Muslims don't have a Jewish Chronicle version. I mean, this is... Look, it's there's no the point trying to tell me what I think. I have not moved. You, yeah. Everyone else can go and read everything I've written, everything I've said to you on Twitter, and listen to Five Lives. That's not the point. And they should. The point here is your, your the point article, here is not the legal argument. Let's put aside the your law. Your article comes down to two words, Mehdi: grow up. 
That's the two. Oh, words I don't deny that. I don't do that. Do you, David, do you not get this point? I can say to someone who throws a Molotov cocktail at a policeman in Pakistan about a film in California that he should grow up. I can also say that I understand why he's upset and I'm upset. Right. Why is that a contradiction? Okay, look, no, look, look. If you are going to tell me that the, that the Prophet is an incredibly important person in your life and the life of all Muslims, I didn't say it, you did. Yes. All Muslims. I would argue with you, firstly, that there are quite a lot of Muslims for whom the, the Prophet is not the central feature of their life and who don't believe that the Prophet is more important than their children and their parents. And so on. I'd, I'd of course. Put that to you. Of course. We're talking loosely. billion people, that is like that is well, likely I mean, to be true. You can apply that argument to any religion. Of course, there's going to be a minority who don't sign up to every exactly, practice and belief. Exactly, exactly so. So... Just 300 years ago, we were executing people in this country for blasphemy because people regarded the image they had and then later on the relationship they had with Jesus Christ in more exaggerated terms even than yours because they also thought that there was a divine authority to the church itself, which fortunately uh, Islam does not have with regards to kind of giving authority to the organisations and structures of belief. However, there are and there were millions of Christians who believe that they have a personal representation with Jesus Christ. And if you were to stop the Christian Union evangelists on the LSE campus who go round door to door, you would find that they would say that this is true. And they don't like the life of Brian Mickey. They don't like it, and they don't like Jerry Spring of the Opera, and they demonstrated against it, and so on. But, but, but we have hazarded and lost nothing. By having, I'd say, by having those representations. Unless you're going to tell me, and this is where you get, your, you have to stick your, screw your courage to the sticking post. Do you think we are a poorer society for Life of Brian and Jerry Springer the Opera? That's, uh, how can I In what sense? Society, a more uncivil society taking less account of people's sensibilities like the sensibility of those Christians. No, because I can't, because I can't speak for Christians, so no, I don't watch you as a Christian. It's not ridiculous. That it's not ridiculous, ridiculous at all. Let me, let, me, well, let, me, let, me, let me turn it on its head. Let me turn it on one point. Let me turn it on its head. In Egypt, and I need to make two points here. In Egypt, in Egypt, if the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt started running Life of Brian as part of a general media trend in which Christians were targeted, Christians were stopped at airports, Christians were demonised on the front pages, Coptic churches were attacked, and as part of that they also ran the Life of Brian and Jerry Springer and various other things, but they wouldn't because it's not the exact analogy because we also respect Jesus. But if they did something like that, you would take a step back and wonder, what is the context here? I mean, you discuss all these things as if there's no social or political context. Well, there's they, nothing going on with Muslims well, in the world. We just madly got up actually, one day and got really angry it's for no reason. The Egyptian governments have done that. It's called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and they've done so it. Is outrageous, which is condemned in that re- article well, that you read of mine. Well, just, I want to come... <laughs> <laughs> it's very good, isn't it? <laughs> it is seriously very, very good. And uh, perhaps I should be sitting there rather than here, but, but I do want to, just before I go to the order, I do want to just nail down that question, okay, because I think that's the point where we've got to, which is, is this a discussion, this is to both of you, that... Um, is this a discussion that is primarily about faith and therefore you're never going to agree? Or is there, um, and you know, I would argue when I talk about the protests against the innocence of Muslims, you know, I wonder how much of that was more about politics, yeah. uh, both politics there and perhaps geopolitics as well. So just briefly, without yelling, well, yelling. Um, <laughs> Can you just both of you have a go? Because I think you're about to touch on that anyway, Mary. Do you want to start with that and just uh, well, just take a minute to? Just I don't think this is all about faith. Yeah. Um, I that's why I raised the issue of political correctness. I think 
Uh, for me, I mean, I, I see Islamophobia as a form of racism. I think people who hide behind that, it's only about ideology. And, you know, EDL's whole line is, we're not racist because Islam's an ideology. Um, I don't buy that argument. I do see this in the context of the demonization of a minority. I do understand why, for example, Mark Thompson, the BBC Director General, famously said that, you know, I would run the Jerry Springer show, but I wouldn't run something similar on Muslims because they're a minority that we have to work out. You know, you cannot ignore the context of minority-majority, demonization, discrimination, all of that loaded political backdrop and racial backdrop because a lot of this is to do with race. It's why I mentioned the point about racism, you know, you can get away with saying, oh, I won't say anything about your race, but I will go after everything else about you. I, I think that's a false distinction, personally. And, I, and the other thing is, this idea that if you're an atheist or if you're a secularist, whatever, you have no concept of the sacred, which is bollocks, to be honest. Um, you saw that with the military case this year, you saw that with the poppy burning, and as I mentioned, 9-11. Go to the United States and start saying whatever you like about 9-11 on TV or radio. See how long your career lasts. See how long you're allowed to say whatever you want. I mean, it's nonsense. People, it's all very convenient to be in favour of free speech when it's on your side. When it's not on your side, there are very few people like David who admirably is consistent. The average Joe on the street isn't as consistent perhaps as David. You're accused of consistency, David. I know. Uh, <laughs> well, Nathan's being nice because I bet I'm not consistent. And I mean, one of the things that we um, perforce should recognise is that all of us are in a right stew about it, and almost any of us could find points which contradicted our mainstream uh, uh, beliefs about this. This is awkward territory. And the other thing about social media and is, that, is that all this is moving incredibly quickly. There are people who are, we all suffer from cognitive dissonance about this. It's absolutely true. We're quite, quite capable of putting alternative propositions to ourselves without noticing that they, are, that they do actually... Uh, contradict each other. But it does strike me that some things get to be more important than others. And in the field of religion, I mean, I've had this image as a secular leftist years ago when I was down everybody's left. Religion would wither away by and large. Or, insofar as it wouldn't, it would be like the Church of England. You know, we gradually get rid of the bishops and so on, be kind of rather benign and the occasional bishop would come on and complain about the life of Brian, etc. And those who wanted to be Christians would, and by and large it would sort of gradually go. One of the things that's... Um, uh, changed radically in the world around us is that religion is increasingly assertive but despite the fact that actually the numbers of people, as we'll see in the British survey um, census this year who say they practice a religion or religion is actually falling and in one five year period in the States it, the, those calling themselves atheists rose from 15% effectively to 20% which in the concept of the States is an awful lot. Nevertheless Religion is very big. It's very big in Russia, where they have just, uh, where the recrudescence of the Orthodox Church is being used as a major booster for the establishment. And guess what? They're establishing blasphemy laws. And effectively, what did Pussy Riot go to prison for five years over? The idea that they were promulgating hate speech, which might cause offence in a Russian cathedral, and so on. Do I want to encourage pussy riot? Well, yeah, actually, you know what? I probably on the whole do. Though I have to recognise that the particular term <coughs> they use didn't work very well with the Russian people. So let's just say it's not just a religious business by any matter of means. That um, uh, is absolutely right. There are not what I'm called sacred. I said I don't have any concept of uh, internal concept of the sacred. I don't find it a useful concept. Special. But, it, well, <coughs> yes, um, uh, it would be. Um, uh, it, it, in fact, actually, you challenged me to invent a word by the end of the evening that would actually stand in place of yeah. what a secular book called sacred. I think it's a good challenge. Nothing to do with White Hart Lane. Shrine. <laughs> shrine, yes. Look at the way we use the word shrine. Mortuary. Um, anyway, right now, I want to throw it out to you. As you spotted, we've, um, well, they have overrun um, magnificently. So I'm going to, people, if you want to ask a question, I'm going to take a range of people. If you want to make a brief point or ask a brief question, 
We'll take a few of them, give them a pause, and then get you to come back. So put your hands up if you'd like to say something. Uh, I, I would just like to ask, I think, in a point of consistency, gone a little bit further. So, for example, if the chap at the back completely dependent on Grant's David Aronovich overhead with an iron bar because of the Tottenham supporter, we're going to prison for X amount. If I completely independently whack Medea Hassan over there with an iron bar because he's black, he's not all the colour of his skin, I'll be trying to a different law to send to prison for a lot longer. That's not speech. Discrimin- disc- discrimination, discrimination is not speech. <laughs> yeah, you know, discrimina- discrimination is actually stopping. So actually, if you, if you like, it's actually akin to stopping freedom of speech. It's the, it's, it's the action equivalent of preventing freedom of speech. If you say a black can't come in here, then you are doing something fairly fundamental akin to saying a black can't speak here. Of course a black can't speak. Black can't come in here, and a black certainly can't speak here, can they? So it presumably, you know, so it absolutely abrogates right. all those sorts of rights. But you don't, you don't extend that to faith groups? To, to, what? To what? I don't. So I what's your take on Islamophobia? I don't, I don't support golf clubs saying no uh, Jews or Muslims or... No, I don't support discrimination. I, you know, I'm against discrimination. What I mean, if they that's say that's because we're only opposed to Muslims' beliefs, not to the Muslims themselves? Oh, no, if you're talking about the, if you're talking about the EDL, let's be absolutely... No, forget the EDL, just oh, a, a golf club owner. If you're, there are people who use the notion of Islam um, for the next generation of racism and, uh, and discrimination. There's no, there's no question about it. Before Rushdie, nobody in this country who, uh, who was likely to be a racist had the faintest idea of what the distinction between one kind of Asian and another was. You know, the kind of people who dragged their knuckles down the streets on their NF demonstrators, demonstrations could not distinguish, as indeed some of these people in the States can't, between a Sikh and a Muslim. They thought that the Muslims are the ones wearing turbans and they attack Sikhs. But I'm confused then because you say on the one hand you recognise that point. Quite important, a lot of people on the right wouldn't recognise that point. You do. You recognise that point that there is this context there, there is this cover, this cloak to be used for Islamophobia. On the other hand, you then say that Muslims should be less touchy and grow up. Absolutely. When the Muslims see that cloak every day and have to live no, with no, it, absolutely. and then they see these cartoons. And, 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 there's a, and there's a very good reason for it, because when you have phenomenon like the Rushdie phenomenon or like some of the reactions, and you've said this yourself and it's absolutely true, it immensely strengthens the hands of people like the EDL, not because it changes their view, but because it changes the views significantly of people around them so that their views begin to make sense to those people. That's the huge danger. That is an, that, that is an enormous danger. Something like Innocence of the Muslims is, becomes really toxic when it's reported over here in terms of people's attitudes of what it is they think Muslims do. I guess pause on that one. Great. At the very back. Um, this uh, idea of Mr. Ray, 
type of speech offends a certain group of people, and that group of offended people may be incited to breach the peace. That is not what our court denial is about. It is not banned because the offended group, i.e. Jews, may breach the peace. It is banned because because of what it may incite about Jews in another group of people, i.e. So, so why would that not apply, for example, to this movie in California? The guys who made it explicitly said it was a political provocation. They're on the far right of American politics. But it is a comparison because it's you refer to inciting of hate, and I would argue a lot of what David has talked about incites hate. It's not art, it's not historical criticism. How do you know that? Have you looked at the latest level of hate crimes against Muslims in California? Check out the Ground Zero Mosque affair a couple of years ago. You would. Yeah, I completely agree with you about the time of COVID being a COVID or resident, right? But the, the, the calls for the media to be banned have been because of fear of the violence that they encourage amongst Muslims. Can I just step in on this? Because it, it seems to me, actually, that it's a classic example where the ostensible given reason is not the real reason. The real reason is not, I think... Uh, it certainly isn't, you're absolutely right, it's not because it's offensive to Jews, that isn't the reason there are nearly no Jews in Germany anymore for reasons that we know, understand fully well. It's not because the fairly small um, uh, population of Jews in and around Berlin complain that the German government does this, nor is it um, actually because of the encouragement of the far right. It's actually an expulsive fantasy is what the Holocaust uh, outlawing the Holocaust denial is about. What it says is we are as different from the people who did the Holocaust as it is possible to be. That's what that piece of legislation says. But, that's, that's the but it's still a restriction on free speech. Words, I agree with it. I'm just words, saying to you, you accept the restriction on free speech. I, and, and, no, I'm agreeing with your reasoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in other words, it's a, statement about, it's a statement about us. Now, of course, in this, I, can, I completely understand why Germans wanted to make that statement. Wouldn't you want to make that statement? I don't think Germans have to make that statement anymore, frankly, um, except to Greeks, apparently. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to agree with Mehdi here. Uh, my family is from the subcontinent of India. My wife's family is from Germany. Uh, one of my children was abused. She was called a Paki. Now, I can't understand this. Paki is people from Pakistan in my head. That is geography. Why has it become a racist abuse? And the only reason that child who, who abused us, no action was taken, was because I am not Muslim. And she wasn't called effing German. That is the reality. So, you know, the, the, it's so strange because there's so much hypocrisy in our communities which we live within. The child who abused my daughter was asked by the police. Of course I called the police. He, he asked the child, why did you say that? He said, that's what my parents say, that they see people like him on TV. Why people like him? Why didn't they point out about my wife? She's a white woman from Germany, well, originally from Germany. She's not German in any context anymore. She's English, as, as we all are. So why was that not brought out? Is what I would love to know. Why are you looking at my color? I don't see your color when I speak to you. Why are you looking at my color when you speak with me? And why does the authority look at my color when they speak to you? I'm sorry. I, I'm really disgusted with this. 
I, I don't understand this at any time. Okay, thanks very much. Let's take another question or another point from you. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, um, I just want to say Following exchanges on Yeah, I'm, uh, forgive me, uh, I know I'm in a university, but I'm not going to use the language of isms uh, uh, too, much, uh, uh, too much here. Uh, the point of, I mean, when I spoke earlier and at the Frontline Club, I says we've all got to be less touchy. And I mean me too. And I mean like about that T-shirt and so on. And I mean about like Liam Stacey and so on, people who, whose views offend me enormously, right? And, and people who... But because of the world of communication in which we live and increasingly live, I cannot afford to be offended every time somebody does this. I mean, we get to the stage now at the moment whereby, you, you know the mechanism of retweeting, and people now retweet things they find offensive. So instead of just one person finding something offensive, thousands of us have got to find the bloody thing offensive. <laughs> and so on. And we have offensive things turning up because people tweet stuff they think is offensive because it's offensive. And so on. We, I just can't, I cannot invest emotionally, and nor can the rest of us, in the business of being offended. But the point that I was making about the particularities of, say, the innocence of Muslims uh, is this, and not that I accept the notion that there are 1.4 to 1.8 billion Muslims who do the same thing at the same time. Of course, that's utter rubbish. Complete nonsense. How could there be? This spans large portions of the, of the globe with very different cultures and very different peoples, and it's absurdity to, to think that it does. But... There is the practice of politicians and others and, uh, and, and preachers using a sense of grievance. A sense of grievance and self-pity is a really strong sense. Of, look at the way, for instance, the EDL works. It works on the basis of saying, you, you English people, you're the discriminated against ones. You're the people who are badly done by. You're the people who don't get the jobs. You're the people who don't get the housing. You're the people who are discriminated against. You are the people who uh, get the rough deal. That's the way it works, okay? So that's what politicians play, play upon. And my point was, you've got to get out of that. That is an adolescent way of behaving politics. It's just, everybody just does stuff to me. I'm, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm laid upon all the time. Now, it doesn't even matter if I'm in the majority in my own country by a massive amount, and actually the minorities in my own country are completely different people. Copts in Egypt, Christians or Shias in, uh, uh, in Pakistan and so on. And so, this is the, so that is the sense in which I said there has to kind of, this is an adolescence. Um, and I also, it also relates to this point about the 40, 50, 60 years time. I want there to be a situation, I, I need, we need there to be a situation whereby in 40 to 50 years time, if I want to draw a picture of someone, I say the profit on the blackboard, then maybe just laugh at it. Okay, we'll, we'll all come well, back let, in four years. Well, let me, very quickly, let me just come out to two th very quick things. One is, David, you're not dealing with the idea that if you turn out not to be a prophet yourself 
and in 40, 50 years, it doesn't happen what you want to happen. What are you going to do? There doesn't seem to be any kind of vision on your part which says, okay, if these childish Muslims don't grow up in the way I want them to and stop being offended about things that offend them, what are we going to do? Because we're still going to be here. Either you ethnically cleanse us out of the continent or you come up with a way where we all live side by side. There's, there's no third option. There's no option that says we just carry on like this. I mean, we are in a plural, multicultural, multi As I say, you're not a kind of crazy far-right winger. You don't have a problem with a multicultural, multi society. That involves compromise. That involves finding, you know, I may not agree with everything you do or say, but I will do things to respect you and to not offend you because I want to live side by side with you. I want to work with you. I want to friend you. Maybe our children will get married, etc., etc. Why do you put not offend? Why? Because, why? because I don't see why. I, you said every, earlier every, I, every it's a legal part, right. You sound like you no, want to offend no, people. No, I don't. But why? every part of that but, sentence makes sense apart from not offending. Why is it a good thing to offend people? Because you're, it's not a good thing to offend people. It's a good seems, thing to have the right to be offended. I, I never said not to the right. But what about the. No, what? no, no. What? I've not questioned the right to do I have the right to fart in a lift. I don't do it because it's antisocial behaviour. I don't want to offend the other people in the lift. I mean, this idea that you have a right, so you have to do it, that sounds to me more childish than anything else. Well, actually, I have a right, I want to exercise. Actually, there are, there are physical circumstances where it might be bad. Well, fair enough. Uh, very quickly, on the race point, and I just need to pick up Dave's point and the gentleman's point about racism. I firmly believe that this is a debate also about racism. We can avoid it as much as we like. David keeps touching on it and kind of going around the edges of it. It is to do with, you want to put up a cartoon that you think is funny, is not the one. If you put up a cartoon of Moses on the wall with a big nose, hook nose as a corrupt financier and said, I'm just talking about Moses, a historical point. No one would believe you. You would say that's a gross anti-Semitic caricature and attack and I hope a lot of us would walk out. But you want to put up a picture of a prophet as a terrorist and say, haha, this is just a historical point. It's just a bit of fun. Grow up. And expect Muslims not to have a response to that. I just find that totally inconsistent. Very quickly, let's try and get some quick comments from the questions. Go ahead, shout. Keep it brief, please, guys. Okay, I think that this term Islamophobia, which we've heard a number of times this evening, is one that we can really do without. Or rather, it would be better if we could find uh, a replacement for it, because what it does is it mixes up the legitimate criticism of Islamic beliefs with the stigmatization of its adherents. And this is something many uh, tried to do deliberately this evening to preclude uh, Islamic beliefs from being criticized. 
haven't done that once. Yes, just, just make the point. As much part of your personality as the colour of your skin. Now I can say to you that I'm a Marxist. I mean, I'm not Marxist, but I can say to you that I'm a Marxist, and this is central to my identity, and therefore it includes criticism. That doesn't make it so. Okay. Next question. Let's take. So I should get some people from over there. Sorry. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Question about the green agreement. You said that you wish that. Yeah. Why didn't I do it? Um, because, because Charlie asked me not to. Um, otherwise, I would have done. Um, but I was scared. Now, it could be. It could be that that's. Yeah. No, no. I was scared that people would hit me. No, no, no. That's that's what we're. T- heaven's sake. That's what we're talking about here. People are scared of doing some of these things. They're actually frightened of doing People get hit and people get targeted and people get threatened for doing this shit. I mean, this is no, there's no, kind, of, there's no kind of idle thing. There are other things that you can get targeted and threatened for doing, etc. And incidentally, that brings me back to the point about, um, about what you find on, on the internet. I'm threatened or, you know, or let's say, let's take anti-Semitic material. Anti-Semitic material is freely available on the internet all the time, everywhere, including anti-Semitic films. Press TV, the Iranian television station, pours it out absolutely constantly, and you find it replicated um, and linked to on sites like, you know, quite often some of the Palestinian sites here who are not quite so necessarily discriminating about which people they link to and so on. God alone knows, here at the NSE you have an argument about this about five times a bloody week as far as I can see. Uh, with you know, you have an argue, You seem to have been in a perpetual state of arguing about who should invite and disinvite because they say this, they say that, and they're not respectable, and they are respectable, and so on. It's been an absolute constant thing here, and this is what I'm saying. We are going to have to get out of this. We can't afford to continuously have this set of you know, uh, 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 what's that? Like a neurosis about what other people are saying. If we don't like what people are saying, we're going to have to argue against them. It's what we're going to have to do. As Obama said in the United Nations, the cure to speech is more speech. It's the only way. I'll just keep going around very quickly, just, just to get three more to finish it. Please, go. Yeah, hi. Um, I just want to know how many people in the room actually saw the... How many people have seen the uh, innocence of Muslims? Yeah? Okay. And your point okay. is... In well, I saw it... Um, Deliberately offensive, um, um, and listening to Maddie today um, kind of brought home to me the level of um, propaganda against Muslims. Uh, okay. Thank you, Blucha. Um, I, I think we can all understand that we don't want to go our way to offend people all the time. Uh, nice to get on, but religion has such an influence on public life that I think it's very similar to, to politics. You wouldn't go around to a friend's house and start telling them they're an idiot because their political beliefs are different to yours and you're offensive. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's why you were here this evening, I know that was friends. <laughs> but we know how important it is that we can debate this very, very vigorously in public, including satire, um, critical beliefs and so on. And religion is the same, I think. Don't go out of your way to, to offend people, but we have to be able to criticise it very rigorously, including satire and comedy. And the fact that you couldn't even put those cartoons up to, for us to have a discussion about them, whether they're offensive or, or 
noughts, you know, whether they have any value, shows how far it's gone, we can't even discuss it openly. Okay. Right, and the guy at the back had his hand up a long time, please. Um, David, I think your examples of using uh, Life of Brian was comparable to the cartoons about Muhammad. Because essentially, Life of Brian is making jokes set around Life of Brian, so not actually criticizing the joke about Brian. Oh, come on. As opposed to. Come on. Are you comparing John Cleese to the nutcase in California? I mean, are you? No. He, Monty Python were not hate-filled. The people behind the stuff that you want to show us are hate-filled. No, you, you seem to be unable to get that perfect, distinction. That, no, no that's, that, no, that's perfectly true. I mean, the, the life of Brian is, of course, very much more like the satanic verses in that respect, which is that it's actually a, uh, it's actually a far more subtle work of undermining religion than simply an attack on the life of Christ would be. Because it essentially says, you see all this, it's all ridiculous. That's what it says. It says it about the whole damn shebang. The whole lot, it says, it's ridiculous. There's this wonderful thing which I didn't show, which we, you know, it's a thing we haven't got time for. Who doesn't remember the stoning? In, uh, 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 essentially, it is saying the word Jehovah, or the Tetragrammaton, by the way, uh, the word of the Yahweh, and, and it was blasphemous. And this wonderful thing whereby this guy's going to be stoned. There's all these women who've got to pretend to be men stoning him, so they all have to kind of moderate their voices, etc. And, of course, the Jewish priest is the one who uses the word Jehovah, and they stone him to death instead. Yeah. Um, <coughs> one last comment from the floor, and then I'll get you two just to sum up. I'm sure it can't be true, but maybe did you really refer to non-Muslims as animals? No, 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 no is the answer. If you watch that full video in full, you'll see that it's a nicely edited thing. David mentioned the internet before. You shouldn't believe everything you see on the internet. Um, and I've written about this extensively. And, that's, and it's interesting to raise that. Let's, let's raise that point. Um, there, are a lot, there, there, there is a couple of videos out there of me speaking several years ago uh, in which I'm quoted out of context, is my, is, has always been my argument. But that doesn't change the fact that I offended a lot of people. And I apologise for that. And I feel really bad about that. That's, what's, that's also interesting coming and preparing for a debate like this, which is this idea of offence. And I, you know, I've thought long and hard about it. I said in my speech, you know, part of what I do is offend people. You know, I write a column, I have a go at people, I have a go at politicians, etc., etc. But I think that's different to what we're talking about tonight. This is not an academic debate. This is not just about going to your mate's house and talking about politics and religion. This is about, you have to put it in its political and social context. You cannot ignore that. Well, well, what, that's what I want to do. both of you to sort of wrap up on is... Do you want us to respond to the points that we've heard? You can bring those in as well, but really it's this, this idea of, in the, in the end, we've been look, looking at media, if you like, we've talked about media. Why does this matter as a real thing in people's lives? You know, why do you, and do you think that this is, you know, is, is this so much more important than, you know, real conflicts, real, uh, you know, recession going on? We've got conflicts around the world, and yet here we are tonight, and we're talking about, you know, crazy videos in California and strange people's T-shirts. Uh, why does this matter? First, Mehdi, and then David. Well, it matters, on, it matters on several levels in terms of civil liberties, in terms of freedoms, in terms of rights and responsibilities, in terms of the roles of minorities, and what's going on across the world. Um, I just need to pick up on a few things that some people said. The gentleman there talked about beliefs. 
No, I wasn't talking about theological beliefs at all. I was talking about the role that Muhammad plays in our lives. When you ask, there's no point going around saying, why are these Muslims offended? And then when, you tell, when we tell you, just dismiss it. I mean, that's my point. I've not, if you want to tell me that Allah does not exist, that Muhammad is not his messenger, that the Quran is not a divine book, let's have that debate anytime, place. I've not questioned your right to do that. I specifically said Tom Holland having a go at Islam's historical origins, quite controversial, and some idiots had a go at him, totally unjustifiably, uh, is fine. That is not the same thing as a bunch of far-right guys in America America trying to deliberately go around and stoke up hate, stoke, incite hate, I, I disagree with Dave there, at the back about the purpose of the mill and the context of it. Um, I think there's a very, very big difference between having a laugh, watching Life of Brian, and seeing some of the stuff that's going on. It's very difficult for somebody, a Muslim living in New York who's travelling on the subway, who sees ads comparing them to savages to say, well, you know, I, I just need to get a thicker skin. That's hard to do. And when you look at the historical context of this continent, I mean, David talked about Germany, the Holocaust, etc. For Muslims right now, there is a huge sense of fear and insecurity. To just dismiss that and say, no, 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 this is about life of Brian. This is about in 40 years' time, you'll all be modernised. This is about getting a thicker skin. I think, is, I think is actually irresponsible. I think you're actually closing your eyes to what's going on. And it's also slightly patronising, because let's be honest, this is in the context of a majority-minority debate. If we were in Egypt or Saudi Arabia, this debate will be conducted in a very different manner, and I'd probably be sitting on David's side of the argument. But we're not. We're in the United Kingdom, where, as I said, there is huge issues of Islamophobia, huge issues of anti-Muslim racism, whatever you want to call it. If you want to come up with a better label, sir, please do. Islamophobia is not adequate, I agree with you, but I haven't heard a better one. Um, David talks about cure, the cure to speech, and he quoted Obama, is more speech. Again, Wonderful line to use in a university lecture hall. In the real world, it doesn't work like that. Minorities don't have access to that speech. They, you know, how many Muslims have the power of Richard Desmond to respond to the daily express lies and hate that he publishes against Muslims on a regular basis? They don't have the speech to respond in that way. And I just need to come back to this idea about everyone being fine with it. Look, it's, as I said earlier, the French magazines, the cartoons that David thinks are fine... You know, if the French magazine Charlie Hebdo was so brave as it claims it did, it would have picked on a bigger target. To pick on Muslims in France, oh my word, how brave you must be. Uh, and, and we have to come back to the fact that other minorities are protected. Yes, we don't have Holocaust denial laws in this country. Whether that's a right or wrong thing is a st- another debate. But we do really, really, and rightly so, and admirably so, and I don't know if Dave agrees with me or not, because Dave works for the Community Security Trust, we do crack down on anti-Semitism. We do much more than we did previously. We don't allow it to go mainstream in the way that we do Islamophobia. If David stood up today and wanted to make his free speech argument by cracking lots of jokes about concentration camps, I hope that a lot of you would walk out of the room and say, it's not worth it in order to win this debate. I mean, David thinks offence is somehow something uh, akin to just having, a, having an argument or having a row. I don't agree. I, I do think there is a serious issue where you have to look around and say there are Muslims in Europe, Muslims in Britain, who feel not welcome and who see the cartoons and the movie and the newspaper coverage and the politics and the anti-terror laws, etc., 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 and they feel like they don't belong here, that we're being told your views, your opinions, your beliefs are not equal to anyone else's. Correct. Thank you very much. David. Well, actually, the problem is making sure that everybody's opinions and feelings are equal to everyone else's. It's fairly obvious that that is the problem, which is why I set this in terms of one of the objectives will be when other communities are able to see their um, leading religious figures dealt with the same way that Christians uh, uh, can, for instance, in this society. Now, it, so it's a race to the bottom? No. That's not a race to the bottom, because that suggests that Life of Brian shouldn't have been made, Mehdi. You see, and this is the problem that you get into your way, because you make the assumption that you can 
uh, from your Olympian airy decide what speech is good and what is not good for everybody and for all time, and you simply can't. There are things out there that might be seeing said and being done which feel incredibly awkward and unpleasant and indeed offensive that actually turn out to be the thing which is true. Now, the reason why I know this is because my father, aged 33, wept on the day that he heard that Stalin had died. Stalin, to him, was everything that you have said that Mohammed was to you. There's nothing that you can say about Mohammed that Stalin wasn't to my father. Stalin was the great leader. He was the great leader of the working classes. He was inevitably and always correct. Everything that he said was correct. There were big posters that they had up of Stalin because depiction was the business uh, at, that, uh, at that particular point. And he would have been hugely offended, and my mother was still for some time, when anybody dissed Stalin and so on. And yet, nevertheless, we know that dissing Stalin was the thing to do. And it may very well be, maybe. It could be that dissing the prophet is the thing to do. You just don't know it and so on. But people have got to have the right to do it, and indeed for the other religious figures as well. Particularly if you have entire... And this is where we get to the point, your point about discrimination. Part of the problem about this is that we're not just talking... In fact, we're mostly not even talking about what happens in this country. If it was simply this country, there would be significantly less problem. We could have this debate, we could agree about it, and we could all go home, providing a Rushdie case doesn't come up again, we could all be secure about it. And it's precisely in those countries, actually, where Muslims are the majorities that the biggest problems were held. Not the minorities, not the discriminated against, but actually, if anything, and you said it yourself and you were right, the discriminators, the people who do the discriminating, who discriminate against their own minorities, actually, quite often in a way that you couldn't begin to do here for various, for various historical reasons, which you will doubt us correctly about, but nevertheless, nevertheless, which is true. It's in that context... And so at a global level, if we are all going to have to live together, and that means Muslims and non-Muslims and so on, uh, then in that case people are going to have to be less sensitive. I'm going to have to deal with you thinking that I am a ridiculous unbeliever, and you are going to have to deal with me making representations of somebody who's become important in my life because he's important in yours and everybody else's, which is the prophet. Okay, well, I'll stop it there, because we really have run out of time. Obviously... <laughs> This conversation can continue. It will, I hope, I know it will continue on Twitter and on the Huffington Post and, of course, in the Times as well. Um, I hope as well that, you know, I'm very grateful for your coming and I hope that you stick with Polis. We've got events sort of like this <laughs> uh, coming up uh, throughout, throughout the year. So please, you know, go to the website, uh, follow us um, on Twitter, etc., so you can come to other events. But I really am grateful. It's not the first time that Mehdi and David have been part of Polis events. I really hope it isn't the last, because I think they've been absolutely brilliant tonight. Thank you to you, but thank you to them as well.